I was at a book launch the other day and I ended up having that conversation. A conversation that poets have again and again. I think the way it was phrased to me on this particular occasion was, do you do this poetry thing? And I said, uh, sometimes, yes. And I asked in return, do you do this poetry thing? And the person I was talking to said, with that slightly sheepish, embarrassed look, no, I don't. And then came the line, we all know. I think in this instance, it wasn't quite, I don't get poetry. But it was something like, I've always found poetry to be a bit confusing. The thing is, this person, not only were they at a poetry book launch, but she was a book editor. And the way she told me she was a book editor, it made me think that maybe she was a book editor for a very large, prestigious publishing house. You know, she kind of said it in that sideways sort of shrug way. So she knew what she was doing, clearly. But we continued to have that conversation and she was talking about how she thought some poetry was good and it connected with her but a lot of it left her cold and I nodded and I said yes yes that's common and you don't have to like all of it and do you remember which poems connected with you and she said no and then we kind of left it at well poetry really isn't for everyone but me being me, every part of me wanted to tell her what she might be missing. You know, given that she's a book editor, she loves words. She's at a poetry book launch. I wanted to say, look, it, it can be confusing at first, yes. But don't let that deter you. There is so much beauty and joy and even, dare I say, solace in poetry, as long as you can stay there long enough. And I came back to this thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately, about how lucky I have been to have people in my life who helped me to stay there. My teachers. He cared for him, and even Stigand, Alice. Hmm? Oh, I'm listening. And even Stigand, the Archbishop of Canterbury agreed to meet with William and offer him the crown. <laughs> William's conduct at first was modest. <laughs> Alice, will you kindly pay attention to your history lesson? I'm sorry, but how can one possibly pay attention to a book with no pictures in it? My dear child, there are a great many good books in this world without pictures. In this world, perhaps, but in my world, the books will be nothing but pictures. Your world? <laughs> what nonsense. Dee McLean taught me for two years. She taught me when I was in kindergarten and when I was in year two. And that means she taught me to read and write. I have two clear memories of her, both from year two, so I was seven years old at that point. One was when I wrote my first poem which was a limerick about summer, and it ended with the line, every weekend the lawn needs a mow. <laughs> and I remember her laughing at this. 
uh, I remember that she was amused and I remember not being sure what that laughter actually meant. I wanted it to mean something good, but I wasn't sure. The second memory I have is going into the little office at the end of the long corridor in our junior school. And that office was where I knew other kids had to go if they needed help with their reading. And I was pretty certain I did not need help with my reading, so I didn't understand why I had to go there. I assumed, as was my tendency and as is still my tendency, that I had done something wrong and that I was in trouble. At seven, I just lived in constant fear of being in trouble, especially from teachers. The memories I have, the, the very few memories I have of getting in trouble at school are, um, yeah, just some of the worst moments. But it turned out I wasn't in trouble. And Mrs. McLean was just giving me the same reading test that she was giving every year to kid that year. And she asked me to read some really easy words, which I did, and some slightly harder words, which I did as well, and then some really hard words, which I was also able to read. And I remember that she was happy with me. And I felt like that was very good. I'd like to have another wish. Can I please? What would you wish for? I'd wish that I could read. Oh, but you can read. Oh, yes, but not very well. I'd like to be able to read as well as you two. But you don't need a magic penny for that, Toby. All you have to do is to keep practising your reading. Oh, yes, but... So I'm in year nine, I'm 14, I'm pissed off about pretty much everything. Things are very bad at home. None of the girls I have crushes on will love me back. And I'm midway through four years of just extreme orthodontic work. But I have English. English class. And at this point, English is being taken by Mrs. Edgerton. And I have read whatever books Mrs. Edgerton has asked the class to read. I've read them all. I've answered all the questions. And so Mrs. Edgerton takes me aside and she gives me a book that no one else is reading. The Catcher in the Rye. I don't remember reading this book. I, I really don't remember much of what happens in that story. And don't worry, this is not an episode about how Catcher in the Rye changed my life or how J.D. Salinger shapes my consciousness or anything like that. Along with the book, Mrs. Edgerton gave me a set of questions to answer. And I remember that they were very hard questions. Well, they seemed like they were hard to me. They were about ducks and symbolism and things that seemed totally irrelevant to the book I had just read. And I remember feeling for the very first time that I was out of my depth. The next time we had English, I had not answered the questions. But as it turned out, that didn't matter because Mrs. Edgerton was gone. She had just up and left the school halfway through the term. And I remember being so angry at her for leaving because she was my English teacher. And she was one of the people in my life at that point who knew I was good at this thing. That's the bubble bath. Oh dear, sweet, you got it wrong. If it were left to you, you'd be washing your mouth out with bubble bath and putting mouthwash in your bath water. Look, the words are on the front of the bottle sweep. If you could read, you wouldn't need to guess and you wouldn't get things wrong. So my year in high school was a particularly bad year. 
we had a group of boys who were very, very good at being very bad. They skipped school, they smoked, they got in fights, and they seemed to be doing a whole bunch of other things that I, at that point, could only imagine. I was very, very afraid of them. And I got very good at being invisible, keeping my head down, not making eye contact, just praying as I walked past them that they wouldn't say anything to me. So after Mrs. Edgerton left, we had English and we ended up with a relief teacher. And the relief teacher was having none of this bullshit from the boys. And by this stage, you know, we're, we're 14, 15, we've all become pretty used to getting away with all kinds of things because we, are, we were the bad year and we were infamous. We were kind of beyond help. So this teacher tried and failed to control us for an hour and it was the last lesson of the day. And I was just sitting there thinking, you know, stay quiet, stay out of trouble, just get to the end of the day. And then finally the bell rang. And as, as we did, you know, we just, we just all started gathering up our stuff because the bell's rung, we are going home, that's it. But this relief teacher, I can remember her voice, she just said, sit down. And we couldn't believe it. She couldn't do that. She, she can yell and scream and send Robbie to the principal's office as much as she wants, but she can't keep us after school. And then she was. We were all sitting there. And I can still remember that horrible, creeping feeling, realizing I was going to miss my bus. Mum was going to be angry. Now I was in trouble. And I was going to be in more trouble later. And this relief teacher said to us, I will let you all go if any one of you can tell me who wrote Crime and Punishment. And everyone was silent. Because again, this is a bad year in a shitty public school in Canberra. <laughs> uh, in 1997, none of us knew who wrote Crime and Punishment. Except that I had spent so many hours in our in the big lounge room, the top room of our house, um, staring and staring at my dad's books while he was smoking and playing Beethoven or something. And just staring and staring and memorizing the patterns on the spines and the words on the spines. And I found myself saying into this dead quiet classroom, this, this outraged classroom, Dostoevsky. And she let us go. Dear diary, an eventful if disastrous day. Got up, felt cross. Brushed beak. Didn't wash face. Wanted to look mean. Came downstairs, shouted at Nanny. Sulked. I wanted to kick the cat. But we don't have one. Year 11 film studies with Rob. I'm 17, I'm still terrified of most of the people in the corridor, especially two people, Schultze and his friend Tom. Schultze is tall and loud and says really stupid and really funny things. Tom is a, a little shorter, he has a shaved head, he has a huge army coat and combat boots and a wicked smile. 
and I'm going to meet him again later and we're going to fall in love and spend many, many years with each other. But in Year 11 film studies, Tom and Schultze are a huge problem because I am trying to do serious work. I have written my essay on Woody Allen's Purple Rose of Cairo and they have not. And just because they haven't, the whole class gets an extension, which I do not need. And I stayed up last night writing that essay and probably screaming at my brother to leave me alone so I could write it. When we do finally hand in our essays, Rob, who I worship, he has a a weird lisp and a lazy eye and a habit of pointing out the difference between movies and films, and I'm completely obsessed. And he does something that, that totally rattles me. He reads out two of our essays. One of them is Schultz's, and one of them is mine. And he says, one is an example of how to do the assignment well, And one is an example of, I can't quite remember the exact words, but he may as well have said, good writing, entertaining writing. (laughs) This is is an essay that you would actually want to read. And I'm outraged, but I also know Rob is right. Schultz's essay is hilarious, and it's way better than mine. There isn't an opening. (laughs) Of course there is. You try walking through it, you'll see what I mean. What? Go on, go on then. That's just wall, there's no way through. Things are not always what they seem in this place, so you can't take anything for granted. I couldn't read poetry before I knew Al. I used to try. I used to get to work early to my extremely important office job I used to get there and make myself read for 10 minutes I was so out of my depth with poetry I was actually scared of it but I also felt like it was probably the only thing that was going to make my life mean anything at all so I used to put the 10 minute timer on and sit down and read whatever book I had I remember reading David Maloof's Earth Hour this way and none of it went in. I could only tell if I, if I liked a particular line or if I didn't, but I didn't know why I liked it. I didn't know how it was made. I didn't know what to look for. I didn't know how to find meaning. And I didn't know how to let go when there didn't need to be meaning. And I don't remember signing up for Al's course, but it was probably one of those things that I was really good at doing in my late 20s and quite desperate um, to make life <laughs> make life make sense because I was about to turn 30 and I was forever starting new things and turning over new leaves and making resolutions. So I don't remember signing up, but I, I remember not really expecting to stick with it. I remember I thought it probably wouldn't work because how can you learn poetry over the internet? And this is 2012, so it's not even great internet at that point. And the class that Al taught, Modern and Contemporary American Poetry, it really shouldn't have worked. It was essentially a set of videos and a message board and a weekly webcast over, I think, 12 weeks. But Al is basically the reincarnation of Walt Whitman. He contains multitudes upon multitudes. His passion for poetry is, I think, infinite. 
and through the videos with the gorgeous students and the message boards and the webcasts and the, I want to say thousands of people who were in the course with me, uh, I felt it. I felt Al's passion and enthusiasm. I can still remember the day that he replied directly to my interpretation of a poem. I think it was a William Carlos Williams poem. Something like, yes, Alice, that's it. Keep, keep going. And what Al gave me and what I never want to lose is the sense of wonder and a type of beginner's mind. He is the complete opposite of what you'd expect a poetry teacher to be. He is not imparting knowledge one way. He wants to know what you have to say just as much as he wants to tell you what he thinks. Well, little Ted, you can sit just there next to me for the story because there's a bear in the story quite like him. It's called This is the Bear and the Scary Night. So the episode's going to get sad now. If you're having a shit day, maybe jump out. I don't, I don't want to make your day worse. So Mrs. McLean was, um, she was my teacher for two years, but she was also my mum's friend because my mum worked at our primary school. She worked in the canteen and then she was the library assistant and then she was the IT lady. And so Mrs. McLean uh, sort of had a, a bit of a friendship with mum and she used to take me and her stepdaughter to McDonald's. And this was the only time I ever got to go to McDonald's. It only happened a few times. And I found it extremely strange and very special to be taken outside of the school with a teacher, taken for a treat. I didn't really understand why it was happening, but I was there for it. And as I got older and when I went to high school, Mrs. McLean became Dee, Dee McLean, my mom's friend. I didn't know a huge amount about Dee, but I knew that she had been with her partner for decades and decades, but that they were never married. I knew that she was one of the um, the few friends of mum's who could really make her laugh. My mum didn't laugh much. Dee was really funny. And she did eventually get married after, I think, 20 years of being with her partner. And I thought that was pretty fantastic. And after I started writing, and particularly after I started getting published I intended to tell Dee I thought I would I'd go home to Canberra and I would find a way to see her and and say you know you taught me to read you taught me to write you were the first person who showed me that these things mattered well is that enough what were them upstairs all these weird things running about all over the place I'm going Going where, Burke? Somewhere else. I've had enough of him upstairs and cleaning up after all these trapdoor weirdos. You... you can't leave us, Burke. What will we do? <laughs> Sorry, Pony, but I've had about all I can take. Bye. I think I vaguely knew that Dee was sick in some way, some vague way. And I don't, I don't know when this was. It was five years ago, maybe more. I came home to mum's and mum was sitting in her usual corner, smoking her usual cigarette. 
And she told me that Dee was dead, that she killed herself. And mum was angry. And I recognised that because of the way that she told me. In mum's world, small things are crises, tragedies. Actual tragedy is just a fact. She was extremely matter-of-fact when she told me this. You know, I was angry at mum because there was no one else to be angry with. It's always been this fear of mine that people will leave in this way. It makes me a weird friend because sometimes I can convince myself that something terrible is going to happen and this compels me to make big declarations of love and appreciation to people who were just trying to have a normal day. (laughs) You know, someone's just buying milk or wiping down the kitchen or checking the weather and all of a sudden it's like, I just want you to know how much I appreciate you. (sighs) Anyway. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't get the chance to tell her. If I had a world of my own, everything would be nonsense. Nothing would be what it is, because everything would be what it isn't. And contrary-wise, what it is, it wouldn't be. And what it wouldn't be, it would. You see? So I have a couple of teachers in my life right now, and I don't want to say too much about them in case they're listening, and in case this weirds them out. Sometimes I wonder whether the way I think about teachers is a little bit strange. I mean, it was always weird having mum work in the primary school and having the teachers be both incredibly scary 1980s disciplinarians and also friends who mum sometimes saw on the weekend. That was jarring. But I think this, this relationship between teacher and student can be one of the best things in life. It can be one of the most awful things because it can get twisted at either end. The student can decide that the teacher is everything and that their opinion is the last word. And the teacher can also go on a power trip and and believe that as well. But if both sides remember that that they are two human beings, I think it can be one of the the best relationships that we get to have. I'm going to end with a poem by Kenneth Koch about Delmore Schwartz, who was his teacher. Uh, There's a little bit on this in an article called I Like Writing by Bill Zavatsky on Kenneth Koch. At the start of that article, he talks about how Koch went to Harvard and uh, started studying with Delmore Schwartz. And Bill Zavatsky writes... At Harvard, he immediately enrolled in one of Delmore Schwartz's writing courses, and he remembers, I was so dumb, I thought Yeats was pronounced Yeats. I thought that for just way too long as well. Bill Zavatsky goes on to say, The poet, critic, story, writer got his students so excited about Yeats and Wallace Stevens that Little Red Riding Hood, Coke's first play, was soon completed. I was so starstruck. Coke said, talking of Schwartz. I'd never seen anybody who was in all those New Directions anthologies. I would just do anything to walk out after class with Delmore Schwartz. I'd ask him all kinds of questions, and he would say, Mr. Coke, 
I think you should get an overcoat. You're going to catch a cold. I would say, well, you don't wear an overcoat. And he would say, don't do as I do, do as I say. I thought that was wonderful. Most of all, Coke says, he gave me the image of a real poet. So here is Kenneth Coke's poem for Delmore Schwartz. It's called A Momentary Longing to His Sad Advice from One Long Dead. Who was my teacher at Harvard? Did not wear overcoat. Saying to me as we walked across the yard, Cold, brittle autumn is, you should be wearing overcoat. I said, you are not wearing overcoat. He said, you should do as I say, not do as I do. Just how American it was, and how late 40s it was. Delmore, but not I, was probably aware. He quoted Finnegan's wake to me in his New York apartment, sitting on chair, table directly in front of him. There did he write, I am wondering. Look at this photograph, said, of his mother and father, Coney Island. Do they look happy? He couldn't figure it out. Believed Pogo to be at the limits of our culture. Pogo. Walt Kelly must have read Joyce, Delmore said. Why don't you ask him? Why don't you ask Walt Kelly if he read Finnegan's Wake or not? Your parents don't look happy, but it is just a photograph. Maybe they felt awkward posing for photographs. Maybe it is just a bad photograph. Delmore is not listening. I want to hear him tell me something sad, but however true. Delmore in his tomb is sitting. People say, yes, everyone is dying. But here, read this happy book on the subject. Not Delmore. Not that rueful man. I like how he sounds a little bit like a child. It's very weird, I know, but uh, I really like all that. You are not wearing overcoat. Cold, brittle autumn is you should be wearing overcoat. Or dropping, dropping the articles, making it sound like a, a three-year-old is speaking or something like that. Super weird, Kenneth Coke. So those are my teachers. Those are my stories about my teachers. I forgot to mention... Uh, about when I met Al Phil Reese and I went to the Kelly Writers House in 2016. Uh, it was on the last day of Modpo and they were recording a webcast. I don't remember much about it except <laughs> when I met him. Oh my God, this is so embarrassing. Like obviously it was embarrassing because I'm an embarrassing person and of course that meeting was always going to be embarrassing but I managed to somehow get the earring that I was wearing like weirdly stuck in the wrong place. I can't even explain how I did this. So for most of the conversation, I was just like playing with this earring um, and trying to hide the fact that it was like really uncomfortably stuck in the wrong place. Oh my God, so stupid. Anyway, uh, Al was a total gentleman, uh, of course, no surprise there. Everybody who works at the Kelly Writers House and dedicates so much time to Modpo, um, they were total heroes. And yeah, it's really cool that it's 10 years since they started it. It's still going. God knows how many people have done that course by now. And 
Yeah, that was that was my turning point. That was when I went from I don't really get poetry slash I'm faking that I get poetry to oh this is okay. It's it's for me. The door is open. I'd love to hear about your teachers too. If you care to share, you can always email me. Thanks for listening. You see? In my world, you wouldn't say meow. You'd say, yes, Miss Alice.